All right. Well, we're glad that everyone is here this morning. Uh, we're, we're glad that you are here in the house of the Lord with us. Um, show of hands. So be honest here. Be honest. How many of you have already decorated for Christmas? Uh, there's quite a few, quite a few. Yeah. All right. So my wife's hand better go up because she has already decorated for Christmas. We've already, yeah, we... I think this is the earliest our house has ever been decorated. It kind of hurt a little bit yesterday, but, but it's done. Um, so I, I've, I've seen that trend coming um, this year more and more and more. And it's important as we're looking at, at Christmas, it's important to celebrate the birth of Jesus. as that's a, That marks a major milestone in the story of redemption that is the Bible. And this year for Advent, we're going to be studying the identity of, of the babe in the manger uh, by looking at not by not looking at the Christmas narrative per se as is typical uh, for Christmas season, but by studying Jesus's claims about himself uh, in the Gospel of John, he makes seven "I am" statements. I am fill in the blank. We're going to look at a different one every week, and we started this actually a couple of weeks ago. We got a little uh, teaser, if you will. Uh, We talked about how Jesus claimed uh, he was the exclusive way to the Father when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? So we did that a couple of weeks ago, and in order for us to get through all of them, we are going to decorate for Christmas a little bit early, and we are going to start with another I am statement today. We're going to be looking at Jesus' claim in John chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me, John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So as you're turning there in your Bibles, um, just to, to set the scene a little bit, just to give you a little backstory, at this point in John's gospel, right, at this point in John's account, Jesus and his disciples are going around there they're, uh, at the town surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he and his disciples, and they're going from city to city, and that's where a majority of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. Now, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, as Jesus has been teaching, many of you will be familiar with this, a large crowd gathers. They're wondering how they're going to feed everybody. Uh, the disciples come up with one uh, boy who has a, a small meal, has five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and there are 12 leftover baskets. And so that happens. Then... After that, the disciples, there's one boat there. The disciples get in the boat, and they head to the other side. Jesus does not get in the boat with them. Well, later on that evening, Jesus meets them in the middle. He walks on water out to the boat, um, and then joins them in the boat, and they go on to the other side. And that's where we're going to pick up today. That's what's just happened. So it's the following morning here in, in chapter 6, verse 22, uh, so as everybody, hopefully everybody's there, let's, let's begin this morning by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the blessings that you've given us. We thank you for your word, uh, for the revelation that it is of, of who you are. And Lord, as we, as we go through these holiday seasons, Lord, help us to keep our, um, everything that we do focused and centered around uh, celebrating who you are. Uh, Lord, not to get distracted by uh, the commercialism and materialism of, of our world and our society, not to get, uh, Lord, that temptation is, is so 
um, prevalent and so uh, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to enjoy it, to enjoy the season, to enjoy the fellowship and the company and the food and the gifts and all those things, but help us in all things to give glory to you. Lord, we thank you for your word and just ask the Lord this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have to say to us. Lord, that these would be your words and not mine, that you would speak through me this morning and it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to, we're going to read uh, verses 22 through, through 24 to kind of set the scene. All right, so the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right, so the people wake up and realize that Jesus is gone. There was only one boat here yesterday, and the disciples took it, and Jesus was here, and now Jesus is not here. So where did he go? That's the question that's running through their minds, all right? So eventually they find some other boats come along and they hitch a ride across to the other side looking for Jesus. All right, where did Jesus go? Now Capernaum was a natural place to look because that was Jesus' home base. All right, everything he, he did, that was kind of the home base for his ministry in this region. He would go and minister and then he would return to Capernaum. So they go there looking for Jesus and There they find him. They find Jesus in Capernaum. And the conversation that ensues reveals that they had some serious misconceptions about who Jesus was and what he was doing, even though many of these people had been following him around for quite some time and seen him do some pretty miraculous things. They had some misconceptions about what he was doing. And so we're going to move on now in verses 25 through 34, and we're going to look at a common misconception or some common misconceptions about salvation. There are some things that we can pull from this passage uh, that, are, that are extremely important. So follow along with me in verses 25 through 34. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. All right. Now, in the very beginning, in verse 25, they find him on the other side of the sea. Remember, they've been looking for him. They can't find him. They hitch a ride in some boats from Tiberias. They hitch a ride to Capernaum, and they're looking around, and they find Jesus, and what do they say? When when did you get here? Fancy meeting you here, as if they just accidentally bumped into him again. That's kind of the idea. They throw this statement out like they're trying to cover up the fact that they've been looking frantically for Jesus all day. Now, 
One theme that we see, something that I appreciate uh, about Jesus, but a theme that we see about Jesus in John's gospel is that Jesus never allows an evasive statement or, and yes, there is such thing as a dumb question, Jesus never lets it go unanswered. He doesn't just brush this off. Uh, He doesn't just let it hang out there. Anytime something like this is said, Jesus addresses it. He doesn't allow them to get away with this insincere small talk. Uh, or to pretend that they just happened to run into him again. He knows their hearts and their motivations for seeking him, and he calls them on it. We see something else here that Jesus is wont to do, and that is to ignore their words and respond to their heart. He ignores what they say and responds to what they mean. All right, Jesus is, and this is not the first time, there are numerous examples throughout the Gospels where Jesus responds to a question that wasn't asked. And he'll say, and Jesus replied, or Jesus responded, And the question had not been asked. He responds to their heart, not their words. When it says in verse 26 that Jesus answered, notice that he does not answer, um, he doesn't answer where or when he got there. Nowhere in this account does he explain how or when he got to to Capernaum. He just moves on because he knows that's not what they were really seeking. That's not what they were really asking. He knew they didn't really care about the answer to that question. Now, Parents in this room, you can understand this. How many times does a child come to you and try to start a conversation by making a statement or asking a question that they either already know the answer to or don't really care what the answer is? They just are looking for a way. They're they're fishing for something else or what they really want. If you're a parent in this room, maybe I'm the only one. I hope I'm not the only one. Uh, Miss Tammy's looking. She knows. She she deals with with a bunch of people's kids. Um, for example, if I fixed a bowl of popcorn while my children were outside and one of them comes inside and smells the popcorn and saw the bowl in my hand, they know that it would be a selfish thing to do to, walk, to run over there and say, give me some, I want some. All right? So instead, to cover up their true intent, they would say something like, wow, that smells really good. Or, hey dad, what's in that bowl? Now, I'm going to respond to that question with something like, you just had a snack, go back outside and play. All right? I'm not going to tell them what's in the bowl because they know what's in the bowl. They don't really care what's in the bowl. That's not the answer they're looking for. What they want to know is, can I have some? That's what I really want. That's what, and, and that's the same thing that goes on here. All right, that didn't answer the question uh, that they asked, but it did address what they were really after. And we see this type of response from Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, all right, rabbit trail moment for, for a minute, if you'll humor me. If we stop and reflect on this for a moment, we realize that Jesus knows our hearts this way as well. If we stop and think and realize that, it would change the way that we pray. No matter how we word our prayers, He knows our hearts and He knows our motivations. This means we cannot hide our true motivations from God with how we word our prayers, but it also means, and this is the, the, the most encouraging part, it also means that God knows our hearts even when we can't seem to find the words. And it is to their heart that Jesus responds. In verse 26, he points out that they are seeking the wrong bread. All right? They're seeking him. All right? He knows. He knows what they're after. He knows the reason they're there. They didn't just bump into Jesus. They've been looking for Jesus. But he knows they're looking for him for the wrong reason. The people held a very, especially the the Jews here, held a very materialistic view of the kingdom of God. 
They just had their bellies filled with this miraculous bread, and so they were pursuing not Jesus, but the physical blessings that he provided. That was the draw for them. And how often do we fall into that same trap? How often do we expect material blessing or feel entitled to material blessing from God and fall into despair when life doesn't go the way we think it should or when we face hardship or when the cost of following Jesus begins to rise? It is true that Jesus can and does bless materially and physically and we rightly celebrate and praise Him for that. That's a good thing. However, He makes very clear in verse 27 that these physical blessings are not worth pursuing. It's okay to enjoy, but that's not, that should not be our pursuit. The real blessing brought by Jesus is eternal life. Bridging the gap of sin that separates us as sinners from a holy God. Forgiveness of sin, peace with God, adoption as sons and daughters of God. That's the blessing Jesus came to secure, and that's the blessing worth pursuing. But they prove in verse 28 that they still don't really get it. In verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, many times we ask a similar question. All right, what, what, is God, what, what does God want me to do? What do I need to do to please God? What do I need to, uh, what, what do I need to change? What do I need to, and we have to be very careful because that's a very dangerous question. That's a very dangerous question. What they were asking, and a lot of times if we're honest with ourselves, what they wanted to know was, tell us what God requires and we'll do it. A modern equivalent would be, tell me what I need to do to earn favor with God. What do I need to do to be saved or to know that I'm saved? Tell me the standard, show me the rubric so I can make sure that I've done enough, so I can make sure that I measure up. I can do it on my own. Just point me in the right direction. And this may seem to be a right-hearted question. All right. Point me in the right direction. I, what, what do I need to do to, to, to please God? It might seem to be a right-hearted question, but it reveals a deep misconception about the work of God and our relationship to Him. So what is the answer to their question? Nothing. What must we do? Nothing. It's not something, there's nothing you can do. Jesus doesn't bless you because of what you've done. We can't be saved from God's wrath because of anything we've done. We can't restore the brokenness of sin through any action that we undertake. Rather, Jesus blesses, offers forgiveness, Jesus loves us, etc. in spite of what we've done. Not because of what we've done. Jesus, what must we do to, work, to do the work of God? And his answer is, believe in me. Trust not in what you can do, but what I'm about to do on your behalf. See, salvation is by faith alone in the work of Christ alone on our behalf. And that was their misconception. If we, they were growing up under, especially at this point in time, under the law... In their minds are, what, is the, what are the lists, what are the regulations, are? I, especially many of these Jews who were, uh, especially more towards the upper class, they would have had a very good idea drilled into them from the time they were young. All right, here's all the things that you do. To be godly means you have to do A, B, C, D, E. You don't do these things, you do these things. 
And so when Jesus comes in and Jesus is teaching, they're thinking the same thing. All right, Jesus will lay it out for us. What are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? If I want to be your follower, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus says, no, 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 you're starting at the wrong place. Are those works, those things, how you live, what, those, that's important. That's very important. All right? But that's not where we start. All right? We start with, believe in me. Believe in me. Salvation is by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, on our behalf. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. I love that song because it, it points back, takes all these realities that we have in Jesus and points back to the fact that it's all because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Not because of how I live or the changes I've made or the, the successes that I've had, but because of what Jesus did. Because of the power of Christ in me, therefore I am changed. We see the same concept in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Jesus himself explains it again in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this idea of belief in Jesus as being the essential first component to salvation, to becoming a Christ follower, is not only a core tenet of the gospel, but it's a major theme throughout the gospel of John. John continues to point people back to this. By the sixth chapter of John, you should know, if, you've read, if, you've, if you don't know anything else about the Bible, you don't know anything about Christianity, you pick up a Bible, you turn to the gospel of John, by the sixth chapter, you should know exactly what it takes to follow Jesus. Because John is very clear, believe in me. Believe in me. Salvation from sin is solely based not on anything we have done or anything we can do, but by what Jesus did on our behalf. We often ask that same question today, well, what can I do? All right. Even if we recognize what Jesus has done for us, that's part of especially here, especially in the South, that's part of our culture. If Jesus did this for me, then I need to do what? All right, what's, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, we, we, we don't want to take it as a gift, we want to earn it. And the answer is the same. Believe in Him. Trust in what He did. He explains to them, don't, don't seek the bread that spoils or that satisfies only for a brief moment. But seek the bread that lasts forever, the spiritual bread that provides eternal satisfaction long after the things of this world pass away by placing your faith in the work of Christ on your behalf. So how do the people respond to this profound truth? All right. they've, seen, they've seen Jesus do all these things. They've, they've, talked, they've, they've heard him teach. They've, again, seen what he's done and how he's ministered in the lives of all these different people. How do they respond to this teaching? What do they do? They ask for a sign. Now, put yourself in this situation. All right? Does anybody see the irony here? He's just multiplied physical fruit in front of their eyes, all right, which they ate. Right, they are full of the day before, right, yesterday, because Jesus took five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men. And they, everybody ate their fill, and they had leftovers. They saw him do that. Jesus magically went to bed on one side of the lake and woke up on the other. Right? 
He walked on water. Now, they may not have known exactly how that worked, but they knew that Jesus was here when he went to bed, and he was over there the next day, and that's not humanly possible. There was no boat. All this happened in a 24-hour period, and they come to Jesus and say, well, in order for us to believe you, then you have to show us a sign. How? How? That's, That's the height of arrogance. And it's easy for us at this point, to scoff and to wonder, how in the world could they miss what was right in front of them? How can they be so small-minded as to not get it? Jesus spells it out. He lays it out for them. And they saw it. You know, we're reading about it. They saw it. How could they already forget what he just did right in front of their eyes just over the last 24 hours? But here's where we have to stop and take a step back. Because this question is rooted in unbelief. They have either forgotten or ignored what he has done already. We ask the question in our minds, if not out loud, how could they not see it? And the answer is because they're human. And because humans are born sinners. And that's what it means to be a sinner, to be separated from God, is they don't recognize the Son of God when he's standing right in front of them. It's easy for us to forget that we too are human and thus are born sinners as well. How many of you have, this, this time of year, have certain movies that you watch every year between now and Christmas? Certain Christmas movie that's like your thing, you watch it every year. Uh, one, of, one of ours we do, uh, my parents started that and we continued, but one of our favorites is the Santa Claus or with, with Tim Allen. And there's a profound exchange, believe it or not, there is something profound in that movie. Um, In this exchange, when he is, for those of you who are familiar with the movie, he's the first time he goes to the North Pole, and he's speaking to one of the elves named Judy. And he looks around, and he reflects on what he sees, and then says, I see it, but I don't believe it. And her response to him is, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. The demand for a sign here, as if what we need to believe is just more evidence, that's what our sin nature brings to the table. The reality is, as Jesus points out to them, people don't believe because they see Jesus for who he is. They see him for who he is because God has opened their eyes and given them faith to believe. People do not come to God because it makes logical sense but because God works a miraculous work in their hearts. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. How many people seek for God on their own? None. No one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And in case you think that's a New Testament idea, Paul is quoting from Psalms 14. It's always been that way. Faith in and of itself is a gift of God. Because people don't seek Him for the right reasons on their own, as this crowd illustrates. Paul acknowledges as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24. For Jews demand signs, sound familiar, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but 
to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see the difference there? In and of themselves, our human nature will always come up with a reason why we can't believe. There's never enough evidence. Simple human nature will always demand more evidence, always demand more proof. The threshold of evidence, how much evidence is enough to prove a case, is an infinitely unattainable goal apart from God working to open our eyes and granting us the faith to believe. Their request for a sign like the Israelites receiving manna in the wilderness, literally bread falling from heaven, reveals their blindness of heart, as we've seen, but it also mimics our own inherent blindness apart from his transforming work in us. What they don't realize is that their request actually proves his point. Their response to Jesus, what they ask him to do, proves and illustrates their own blindness of heart. So again, Jesus does not allow ignorant statements to be left hanging out there unchecked. They point to the manna as if what Moses did was greater than what Jesus had done the day before. God gave their, Moses gave, provided manna for the people every day, for generations, or for, for decades, excuse me. They had, they had bread every day, physical bread. Jesus provided one meal. What's one meal compared to decades worth of bread? So that's what, they're, that's, that's, the, that's, that's what they're hinting at here when they're telling Jesus, that, hey, listen, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. You know, we ate bread yesterday, but that was a one-time thing. Like, you've got you to gotta do better than that. If you're really greater than Moses like you claim to be, then you should be able to do greater than Moses. And Jesus points out real quick that it was not Moses, but God who provided the manna. Just like it was God who multiplied the bread and the fish the day before. He also goes on later in this passage, which we don't have time to get to today, but if you read on through the rest of chapter 6, he'll go on and he'll refer back to this and point out to them that their ancestors who saw God provide for their physical needs daily for decades did what? They died in the wilderness. They died in unbelief. They did not enter the promised land, even though they saw bread fall from heaven by the hand of God every single day for decades. So the demand for a greater sign, Jesus recognizes right off the bat and calls them out on it. Listen, there's never a sign great enough that you will believe because of what you've seen. I'm never going to convince you logically. We see the same thing with Lazarus and the rich man. What does the rich man say when, when all is said and done and uh, they've, they've both died and the rich man is tormented in hell and he says... And he prays, just let me, just send Lazarus back to tell my kinfolk, because if somebody from the dead comes back, then maybe they'll believe. And God says, no. No. Because if they won't believe my word, if they won't believe my word through the prophets, through Moses and the example they've already had, more evidence is not going to change anything. It's not for lack of evidence that people do not believe. It's not for lack of evidence. They still don't get it. He then points out again that the bread they're referring to was at the end of the day just bread. Manna was just bread. If you remember the story back in Exodus, it spoiled after a day. And even what was eaten satisfied for a little while, but guess what they did the next day? They got hungry. Its satisfaction was only temporary. 
what he's telling them, what you really need for daily sustenance, for satisfaction that lasts for eternity, was the true bread from heaven. At the end of the day, we need food to live in this world, but there's something more important than physical food, and that is eternal life. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the bread of heaven that gives life to the world. But they still don't get it. They see him, they hear him, but they still see this as a way to get food provided for them every day so that they won't be physically hungry anymore. So how do they respond at the end of all this by, well, give us this bread always. Give us this bread every day. You, know, you have bread that will make us not be hungry, we'll give it to us every day. That would be awesome. That would be great, Jesus. I would love to never have to be hungry, never have to go find food to just not be hungry. That would be one less thing I have to worry about during the day. All right. Still a very materialistic view of what Jesus is talking about. They're missing the point. They're missing the point. Just like the woman at the well asked for the water of Jesus so that she won't be thirsty and have to keep coming to the well every day. She's asking the right question, but she doesn't quite get the full implication of what she's talking about. She's using the right words, but she's actually seeking the wrong thing. She's misunderstanding. She has a basic misconception there. So focused on the physical that the spiritual reality is missed. It reminds me of an old Abbott and Costello bit who's on first if you haven't seen that go home and look it up is absolutely hilarious um but that's very much what's going on here jesus is explaining this to them and they respond with something that proves the fact that they really don't understand what he just said this there's a fundamental disconnect between their expectations of jesus and what he is offering them and they can't see that what he is offering is infinitely better than what they want in youth, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, we watched a video. Christian comedian John Chris did a video in which he went through all the brands that he preferred. All right, he preferred Pepsi over Coke. He preferred Walmart over Target. He went through all this whole list of things, and they got the kids all riled up. It was it was it was a lot of fun. It was hilarious. But he prefaced it all by saying that if this is the standard of excellence, then I prefer all all my stuff. I prefer my stuff one step lower. All right, this is this is what's best. So I like what's second best. I don't want I don't want the I don't want the real thing. I, I prefer I, I don't prefer greatness. I prefer products that imitate greatness. All right, that was his whole premise. It was it was and it was hilarious. So go back and look that one up too. That's a lot of fun. Um, but nobody would really say that out loud. Nobody would look at something and go, okay, well if I think this is the best, then I'm going to intentionally choose something that's less than the best. They just wouldn't. But that's how people in our in their sin nature, that's how human beings in our sinful nature respond to the gospel. To leave no doubt now about what Jesus is saying, he explains it explicitly in the next few verses. He gets even more blunt. And here we see him lay it out in black and white terms. And as he's going through and as he's explaining this, all right, he lays out not only in black and white terms what he means by this, all right, but he lays out God's sovereignty in salvation. In verses 35 through 40, we see God's sovereignty in salvation. So follow along with me in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, he knows the people are struggling with this, though. He spells it out. He's saying we need to not let perishable things be our end goal, but rather pursue imperishable bread, bread that has eternal significance versus temporary significance. Or what is, what is he talking about? So he spells it out for them. I am the bread of life. I am this bread. I am what you need. Spells it out. Well, what does that mean? What does it, what, what does it mean? What is he talking about when he says, I am the bread of life? So he lays it out. First of all, he makes clear he is talking about a person and not some special food that only he has access to. All right? He clarifies the metaphor all the way through. He's not talking about something that you eat. There's not magical bread out there somewhere. All right? That When he refers to himself as the bread of life, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the person, Jesus Christ. Second, the phrase bread of life literally means bread that gives life. Life-giving bread. Satisfaction in being in right relationship with Jesus is everlasting rather than temporal. Then he goes on to correct their misconception that this bread, like physical bread, must be received over and over. All right, they say, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, well, if you have a right relationship with me, all right, if you have the bread of life, then you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. It's not something you have to do over and over and over again. All right, he says, the one, who comes to, the one who comes and believes will never be hungry or thirsty again. All right, one and done. Jesus is the source of true life and eternal blessings therein are permanently obtained by those who come to him and believe in him. Now this is key here. Seeing and knowing do not equate to belief. Seeing and knowing do not equate to belief. These people saw him perform miraculous deeds. They heard him teach. They heard him explain who he was. They heard him explain what he taught. They saw, like Tim Allen saw, but they didn't believe. Likewise, I'm burdened by the thought that there are many of you, even in this room, who, might, who would fall into this category, who need to hear this. Right? Knowing who he is, Believing that he is real, seeing what he has done, doesn't equal faith. Albert Moeller defines belief in what I feel is a helpful way. He says, belief is total commitment, not merely intellectual assent. It's not merely agreeing that something is true, it's committing to it. This theme of belief as the requirement for salvation, as we said, is a theme of John, and we're going to see that again and again over the next month. John 3.16, for example, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The one who believes. Just because your parents take you to church, just because you've been to Sunday school or youth group, just because you know the right answers to the questions being asked, just because you know a lot about the Bible, or just because you've read the Bible, doesn't mean that doesn't equal faith. Those are not that's not evidence of faith. Just because your parents are Christ followers doesn't make you a Christ follower. Only those who come to him will be satisfied. Only those who believe in him will be forever satisfied. Coming to church and coming to Jesus are not the same thing. Have you come to him? 
Have you given yourself in total commitment to Him? Is there evidence of this God-given faith in your life? Is there evidence of obedience to His will in your life? All of humanity can be divided into two categories. Those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. None of the other distinctions matter but that one. At the end of the day, when all is said and done and we all stand before God, that's the only distinction that matters. Those who believe and those who do not. The sheep from the goats. If those who physically saw him, physically saw him, take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000 men, physically saw him magically appear on the other side of the lake, if they didn't believe, then unbelief is a very real danger for us all. Which, now, if he stopped there, would leave us all in doubt about where we stand. If nothing I do can earn salvation, then how can I trust that my eternity is secure? If there's nothing I can do to earn it, nothing I can do, no rubric that I can measure my life against, how can I know for sure where I stand? You couldn't. There would be no assurance of salvation if Jesus stopped there. So he didn't stop there. Look again at verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me will never be cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here we see God's sovereign hand in our salvation. Now, just to go ahead and throw it out there, the no-no word here that we often get so hung up on is the word election. All right? We, we, we debate that, and there are people who are in this camp or that camp and disagree over different things, and we can debate the finer points of this doctrine all day, but at the end of the day, there will always be an element of mystery here because God is infinite and we are not. What we do know, what we cannot argue with are the words of Scripture. What does Jesus say? From that, we can't stray. What does Jesus say? All the Father gives will come. Those whom God opens their eyes to the gospel will come. Look at what else he says. Whoever comes will not be rejected. No one who comes to Jesus, all right, no one who comes to Jesus is rejected because somehow they were not chosen. All, right? all who come, none will be rejected. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, Jesus says. None who come to him, though imperfect still, can ever be ultimately lost. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. All right? Once in Christ, your eternity is forever secure. That's what Jesus says. All right? Those are his words. So if you don't like the doctrine of election, you can take it up with Jesus. That's how that, he lays it out there. And you could add verse 44 in there too. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do I understand the intricacies of how all this works? No. All right. No, uh, I don't, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I stumbled across an, an old sermon this week. I don't remember who, who gave it, or I mean, it was a long, long, long time ago. But speaking on the doctrine of election, he made three points to summarize it. And I feel like those three points are 
crucial or important for us to hear. He says, number one, the doctrine of election, the fact that God has a sovereign hand in, in salvation. He said it's, it's biblical, number one. It's clear throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, or you cannot say it doesn't exist because it's woven everywhere. Our people come back, and I've heard this, I bet I've heard this 50 times over the last year and a half to two years. Why do we keep coming back to this? Why don't we keep coming back to God's sovereignty? Because the Bible does. All right, it's everywhere. You can't, you have to intentionally pick and choose certain aspects of the Bible in order to stay away from it. And there's, that doesn't leave a whole lot. It's literally woven throughout the fabric of the entire Bible from beginning to end. That God has a sovereign hand in everything. It's biblical. So there we take our stand. It's biblical. Clear throughout Scripture. Number two, it's difficult. All right, it's hard to accept. At nothing new because after Jesus explains all of this, at the end of chapter 6, what happens? All these people that have followed him, they all leave. They walked away. It's difficult. And number three, it's profitable. Why? Why is it important for us to wrestle with this, to keep coming back to this? All right. Because here is our source of assurance. Here is, our, here is our certainty. I see my imperfections and my failures, but I also see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. So I can look at this passage and take great encouragement because Jesus himself said, even though I don't necessarily understand exactly how it all works at the, the, the finer points, Jesus himself says, no one who comes to him will be turned away. And that promise of spiritual blessing and eternal life with him is guaranteed by his word. If that is not true, then the Bible is not true. Then Jesus is not who he says he is, and we're all wasting our time. All right? The Bible is true. God's word is true, and that's what he says. I don't have to wonder which category I'm in. If Jesus' words are true, and they are, then I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am saved, and I know where I stand before God today, and when I die, exactly what's going to happen. I know, not I think, I know. And when doubt starts to creep in, it's here that I turn for reassurance. It's passages like this that I can turn to for reassurance. Because here's where we know for sure it's black and white. Another, I like, I like hymns. That's just kind of how I think. And so I'm, as I'm writing hymn lyrics pop in my head all the time. And as I was writing this, this one kept coming up. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. If my salvation is based in what Jesus did, then I can know exactly where I stand. Knowing this, knowing this, that Jesus is the bread of life, what should our response to His words then be? And I want to quickly point out three things as we as we close, what should our response to this be? Number one is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The promise is there. The offer is there. If you've never come to Jesus, if you have never committed your life to Him, now is the time. Now is the time. The initial investment cost in this world's goods is high, but the returns are infinite. We're all destined for eternal life, whether you like it or not. We all have a longing in this world that can never satisfy. And as sinners, we deserve eternity in hell under God's wrath and judgment, which are, which are very real 
and very terrifying. But what does Jesus say? All who come to him, not some, not a few, not just a select few, chosen few, but all who come to him, all who seek the bread of life will find satisfaction both now and forever. All who come to him will live forever with him in his grace and mercy, having been forgiven by his death in our place. If you have never come to him, come and believe. That's Jesus' call to this crowd, and it's his call to you today. Number two, proclaim the gospel. If you're encouraged and reassured by this passage, and you look at this and go, okay, now I know that I am a follower of Christ. I know that I am His, and my salvation is eternal and secure because I see what God has done for me, and I know nothing can take me out of His hand. If you're encouraged and reassured and reinvigorated by this passage, knowing that you have come to Jesus, your eternity is secure, then your response to these words is to proclaim the gospel. Because God's sovereignty doesn't remove our responsibility. It doesn't remove our our call to obey. God has chosen to use people as the means by which to proclaim the gospel. And there is great freedom of conscience in knowing that our role is to proclaim it, but salvation belongs to God. People's response to the gospel is not our responsibility. It's not up to us to have an answer for every single question that might possibly be asked before we share the gospel with someone, before we tell them about Jesus. Because seeing isn't believing. Even if you had every answer, it wouldn't make any difference if God did not do a miraculous work in their life. Our role, our job is to be faithful to his command to give an answer for our hope and to trust him with the outcome. We leave the outcome in his hands. So number one, come to Jesus. Number two, proclaim the gospel. And number three, give thanks for the bread of life. As we go into this week of thanksgiving, we see throughout history that feasting is important. All right? it's, a, it's, a good, it's, it's a great way to give glory to God through enjoying and recognizing His blessings that He's lavished on us this year. All right? Throughout the Old Testament, we see God Himself in the Old Testament law outlined all these feasts where people were supposed to indulge in all the the good things that God had given as a way of bringing glory to him. However, as we partake of and give thanks for physical, perishable bread around the holiday table, let us also take time to remember and be thankful for the bread of life in whom is our ultimate and eternal satisfaction. Let's let's close our time this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for, we thank you for your word, Lord, for the, the revelation that, that you've given to us. Lord, that we can look to your word and see who you are, uh, Lord, to be and be reminded of what you've done uh, on our behalf. Lord, I pray as we get ready to, to celebrate Thanksgiving, Lord, that we would be thankful for the blessings that we would be thankful for our daily bread, that we would be thankful for friends and family and just how you've worked in each and every one of our lives in different and unique ways over the last year. But at the end of it all, Lord, above all, help us to, to be thankful for who you are. Lord, for the fact that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt where we stand with you, that we can that we can know that we are forgiven. We can know that 
our past has been dealt with. That we know that we have peace with God. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know that, that has never come to Jesus, has never come to you on their own, Lord, that today would be the day. And Lord, as we get ready to to sing your praise this morning, Lord, help us to not just go through the motions, not just to say the words on the screen, but Lord, that we would truly praise you, the author of the blessings, and and not pursue the blessings. Lord, help us to Help us to pursue and to love and to worship and to honor the Creator rather than the creation. Lord, we thank you so much for your patience that you have with us, for your grace and mercy that you've shown us that we don't deserve. May our worship be pleasing to your ear. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.